Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm so glad that you could join us. My name is Scott Gardner and joining me today all the way from the UK is Drake Payton. Hi, how are you doing Scott? Hey, I'm doing great. How about you? Yeah, I'm doing good. Thank you. <laughs> all right, we're going to go ahead and get right into this. And for today, I have a book that is right on the cusp of... of Sort of the loose rule that got laid down a long time ago for this show, which was, you know, we're covering comics at least five years old and, and older. So that's kind of a, just a loose format rule. But I, I just, I forget how that was originally arrived at, but just thought it was a good idea. So this one's right on that edge. This is going back to April 2004. This is Marvel Comics Wolverine and Captain America number one. The cover and interior art are by Tom Derenick, written by R.A. Jones. Original cover price is $2.99, and I'm not sure exactly what I paid for it, but I know it was well under 50 cents. Because I... <laughs> yeah. Well, there used to be this really great comic shop near us that uh, has since sold out to a different owner and now their prices are ridiculously expensive. But it was one of these places where every book was a 50 cents, but then if you went in and, and bought, I think it was, it was either over 50 books or over 100 books, then you would start getting deeper discounts. So I would go in and just buy massive lots of comics and get the price down to like 10 or 20 cents per issue. So I'm pretty sure this was something that I bought as part of that. I've got the entire series but I haven't read it yet. I've just read this first issue so far. How long does it go for? Uh, just four issues. It's a four-issue mini. And uh, this first issue, the story is entitled First Blood, which is one of my favorite movies, by the way. <laughs> and in this issue, we start out beautiful, beautiful splash page of... She's going by the name Warbird in this issue, which I always hated that name. But this is actually uh, Ms. Marvel, but she had not yet resumed the Ms. Marvel name. But just a beautiful piece of art. And all of the art in this is really fantastic. I really am not very familiar with this Tom Derenick guy, but he draws in... It almost looks like a painted style. And uh, very reminiscent to me of, of uh, Mike Zeck. Especially his Captain America looks a hell of a lot like Mike Zeck, which, you know, Mike Zeck... Uh, Mike Zeck's Captain America is my Captain America. So I, I, I love the art right off the bat. But gorgeous splash page of, of Ms. Marvel going into battle, and you open you know, to the uh, to the title page, and it's a beautiful two-page splash of Captain America beating the living hell out of these uh, three big robot, scary-looking, clawed robot things, and she's coming in behind him, and she is basically taken by, by Cap's prowess and, and kind of stalls out in the air to watch him fight these robots, and a robot sneak attacks her from behind and knocks her through a wall. So then when she when she regains her senses and comes back out, she's kind of chiding herself for not keeping her head in the game when Captain America calls out to her and he's been pinned to the ground and this robot's at his neck and really coming down on him. And Cap's basically, you know, pleading with her, you know, it's got me pinned, shoot it, I can't defend myself. And she says, but you're too close. And he tells her, take the shot, that's an order. So she takes the shot almost takes Cap's head off, completely misses the robot. So Cap smacks his shield with his fist, and his shield flies into his hand, and he gets the upper hand, takes the robot out. And then it's revealed that this is all a training room exercise in Avengers Mansion. 
So Warbird lands next to Cap, and she's beating herself up about you know the fact that she failed and and she knew that this was a test and she just you know didn't have the stuff to make the shot that he asked her to make and everything. And he says, you know, as long as you believe that it was impossible, it will remain impossible. You know, you should be better than this, basically. And I have faith in you. You can do so much better and all that sort of thing. So he's really trying to prop her up and and help her gain some some self-confidence again. At this point, they receive a trouble alert from Jarvis, and they go to the infirmary, and there Jarvis is tending to forge of the X-Men. And Forge had come to Avengers Mansion to have them check out this Shi'ar microchip that had been installed in their uh, their computers back at the Xavier Institute. Somehow, Beast and Forge had determined that this microchip ha- has been mutating. So it's basically a mutant microchip, which is kind of a really silly idea. But yeah. the professor said, you know, agrees with uh, with Beast and Forge's plan to take the microchip to Avengers Mansion and have them check it out because they've done all that they can with their own equipment and they're kind of stymied, so they're going to go have the Avengers check it out. So Forge puts the microchip into a suitcase. He's headed to Avengers Mansion when he's ambushed by these guys called the Contingency who are made up of a bunch of really lame-ass-looking mercenary-type guys with really silly names. We have Shrike, Kite, Killdeer, which I thought was really silly. I imagine Killdeer has a partner named uh, Moose Hunter, and this guy named Condor. They're really, uh, I mean, they look like like lamer versions of those, uh, oh, I can't remember what they were called, the guys that, that were hunting the mutants in the sewers back in that, that mutant massacre storyline. Um, the Marauders. Marauders, yeah, yeah. I thought those guys were lame. These guys are even lamer. You thought the Marauders were lame? Yeah, yeah. Well, some of them were kind of cool, but the problem with them is that they all had kind of silly names. Because I think in the 90s, there were so many characters with names that had kill or blood or whatever in their title that they kind of exhausted all the cool titles. And so a lot of them, even if they were cool characters, had kind of silly names. Like there was one like Arclight or something like yeah. that. I just thought it was kind of lame. Scalp Hunter, which to me is an Indian character from Weird Western, you know, not not that guy from the Marauders, but I digress. <laughs> but they, uh, you know, Forge to me has always been one of the, uh, I was going to say one of the lamer X-Men. That's not really fair because he's not really a fighter or anything. He's like their tech guy. So it's it's kind of, he's kind of like the Jordy LaForge of their team. Well, they beat the living hell out of him and leave him, you know, unconscious in the field. And they take the microchip, and you know that was all a flashback sequence, basically. You know, yeah. which which led to why he's in the Avengers Infirmary. So he's brought Cap and Warbird up to speed on the situation, and he tells them that uh, that profe- you know he's phoned back to uh, Xavier, and Xavier put uh, an X Men on the mission. You know, and Captain America is like, well, well, just one. You know, is this a situation? You know, why aren't more of the X Men called in? And he says, well, you know, the rest of them are kind of busy with this other situation. Plus, the one that called in is the best there is at what he does. I'm going to get back to that in a moment. That that best there is part. Anyway, we then cut to an awesome full page splash panel of Wolverine going through the sewers, tracking down this microchip. 
And I just have to say, this is a really awesome-looking Wolverine. I am not the biggest Wolverine fan in the world, but I really liked that character, the way he was portrayed in the movies, especially the first two films. And this look that he has here and, and the way he's portrayed in this mini really seems to owe back to that. And I really like it. You know, he's got a really cool-looking, you know, sleek black outfit. And he's just he's drawn more to look like that, that movie version. And I know that might be sacrilegious to a lot of people, but I was never the biggest X-Men fan anyway. It was really the movies that kind of won me over to, to finally digging the X-Men rather than the comics. So I, I like that he, he has that movie influence in this. He's, uh, he's attacked right away. And it's basically like this fog is is attacking him and he's not able to fight back with his claws because it's just this misty thing. And it finally coalesces into a a woman named Rapture. They get into a big fight and she totally owns Wolverine in this fight, which lends into, you know, Wolverine. I don't think I've ever seen a a single issue of X-Men or Wolverine's own title where he does not say, I'm the best there is at what I do. I think he should amend that to I'm the best there is at what I do and what I do is get my ass kicked a lot because I I always see this guy getting owned. I mean, granted, I like the character, but he doesn't. Is it just me or does he just really seem to get that shit beat out of him a lot? I think he relies a little bit too much on that healing factor and not enough on actual you know, skill and prowess not to get his ass handed to him all the time. I agree. He's meant to be like a CIA agent or something. He's meant to have all this skill, but he just like, all he does is get blown up or, or shot or something and then like cheap shots them or something. Mm-hmm. I see him a lot like Superman. You know, Superman, to me, if it weren't wasn't for the superpowers, I don't think he'd make that great of a superhero in a lot of ways because he's not a skilled combatant. He really relies on his powers to just go in like a bruiser and, and handle the situation. I think Wolverine is sort of the same way that he's supposed to be this like super ninja and all, but I just don't see it. I think he relies more on his, you know, his healing factor and his unbreakable skeleton and all that to go in and, and deal with situations rather than actual skill. But maybe that's just me. Nah, uh, that's why it was really good when he got his um, adamantium ripped out of him. Because that's when his healing factor wasn't any good, and um, well, his claws were just bone. So he actually had to use skill instead of, well, yeah, healing factor. Oh, that's but I gotta admit, he sucked back then too. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so we got back to Avengers Mansion, and Cap has got Sharon Carter of Shield on the phone, and he's wanting to know uh, what's up. He, he's deduced that the reason that these uh, contingency guys found out about this microchip so quickly, and this is actually something I was thinking about at the time. I was like, damn, they found out about this awful fast. Well, what it was was Professor Xavier, or either Professor Xavier or Beast or Forge, somebody had actually called S.H.I.E.L.D. prior to calling the Avengers about this uh, this microchip. And S.H.I.E.L.D. is having some sort of security breach problem with their comm system, and that's how these uh, contingency guys found out about this microchip and were able to ambush Forge. So he's basically taking her to task about the fact that, you know, their their comm system sucks and, you know, they've got vast gaps in it and all that. She kind of brings him up to speed on who contingency is. They were actually a black ops project developed by S.H.I.E.L.D., and then they ended up going rogue. And to the best of her knowledge, they're they're operating as their own unit. They're not really reporting to anybody. 
Cap doesn't exactly buy this story. He feels that they're holding back. And as he's, you know, kind of pondering that, Forge walks in with Warbird and Forge hands him another tracker, like the one that Wolverine was using, only this one is keyed to Wolverine's adamantium skeleton rather than to the microchip because he didn't know what the the energy signature of the microchip was. So Cap and Warbird set out on their mission to, to find Wolverine and assist him in getting this chip back. We cut back to Wolverine, and he finally manages to get the upper hand with Rapture and knocks her silly, but then the rest of the contingency has shown up, and they've all got a beat on him, and he's basically like, you know, well, I'm, I'm freaking Wolverine, you know, bullets aren't going to hurt me. They open up on him, just completely open up on him, and it shows him just peppering the hell out of him. And at the end of the book, um, Cap and Warbird are in the sewers, and they're, they're closing in on Wolverine when all of a sudden they hear all these gunshots. And they both kind of freak out, and then they both remind each other that, well, you know, this is Wolverine after all. We've seen him, you know, take bullets and stuff before, and, and Cap even says, I've seen Wolverine take a fragment grenade in the belly and get right back up. They come around a corner, and they find Wolverine laying face down, riddled with bullets, and he's laying face down in the sewer water, and they both are just stunned, and Warbird says, uh, shouldn't he be getting back up? And that's where the issue ends. And, you know, despite the lame microchip, you know, the mutant microchip thing that set the whole story up, I still really enjoyed it. I thought it was just, it was fun. It, it almost felt like an old issue of, uh, like Marvel Team-Up or something like that. It, 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 owed, it owed back to those fun mashup stories of, of like, the 70s. You know, a good, a good cross character or a good cross team uh, team up. And I always like to see Cap and Wolverine together. I like that that was kind of retcon to where they actually have a, a bit of a shared history. You know, they'd actually yeah. met each other in World War II or, or whatever. Are, are you familiar with this uh, with this book at all? Never heard of it, but it, like you said, it does sound fun. Because um, <laughs> the joke at the end, I thought that was pretty amusing. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, it was it was only four issues. Now I'm really curious to check out the other the other three issues and, and read the rest of the mini and find out what the whole thing was about. But uh, the thing that struck me, you know, the story is is simple enough. It's it's pretty straightforward. You know, there's nothing dynamic or anything about it. It feels like I say a lot like an issue of uh, of Marvel Team Up or something like that. Mm-hmm. But what really really struck me was this style of art. It, it's it's a it's a strange look. It's it's like halfway between painted and airbrushed or something and it's really beautiful and uh really looks a hell of a lot like mike zek who again you know i really have a a soft spot for mike zek you know i I loved his captain america I, i really enjoyed his uh his punisher stuff and the only wolverine off the top of my head that i'm familiar with him doing is that that captain america annual where he and, and Wolverine battle, there's a there's a famous cover image that became a poster years later of of Cap and Wolverine fighting, where Wolverine is like raking his claws a, across Cap's shield and it's sparking and everything like that. And uh, so you know that's the only time I'm I'm familiar with Zek drawing Wolverine, but, but Wolverine is drawn very much in that Zek style in this. So this Tom Darnett guy is somebody I'm not terribly familiar with, but if he draws like this all the time, then he might be somebody that I'll, I'll have to, to keep an eye open for, for more projects. I got a real kick out of it. Is he, um, does he do his own colors or? 
inks a lot. It uh, there's no inker listed on this. It uh, it says colors by Hi-Fi Design, and then it just lists letter editors and stuff like that. So it may you know he's just listed as art. So you know the uh, the painted style and the and all that and the airbrush style that that may actually owe more to this hi-fi design than to him, but I, I don't know for sure. Yeah, Which, I've had that problem before where you've looked at some art and you thought, "Wow, this is amazing," and you look at some other and it's like, "Oh, it's I mean, it's either the colorist or it's the style it was done in." Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna have to hunt it da- hunt him down and see if I have anything else by him and see if that that style is consistent in his other books or not. But uh, yeah, the, I really liked it here. The bit about the mutated microchip or whatever, it doesn't sound that appealing. I mean, um, in uh, Astonishing X-Men, the Danger Room mutated into his own like life being. So they seem to be doing that a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. It was, yeah, I thought that was kind of lame. Yeah. But, you know, uh, that that was actually one of the things I, I thought appealed about this was that, you know, if you look back at a lot of classic, say, like, 70s or, or 80s stories of something like Marvel Team-Up or Marvel 2-in-1, something where, where characters mashed up in a story, mm-hmm. a lot of times the, the premise was downright stupid, and it was just a, a plot device to get, you know, two characters that wouldn't normally meet up all that often together. So I, I could kind of forgive it with this, you know, only because it was fun and, and hopefully it would go in, in an interesting direction later on when they actually, you know, met each other. And a lot of times the, the interplay between the characters and, and especially if there's any sort of conflict or whatever between the characters, I, I usually expect that to be more interesting than whatever the premise was that got them together in the first place. So I, I kind of expect that that's probably where this is going to go. But um, Do you know if this is before or after Wolverine um, Origins, the uh, book? I expect it's after because there actually is a reference to the fact that Wolverine is over 100 years old. Yeah, it just says Wolverine is over 100, but it doesn't say like his real name or anything, but I would still expect that this is probably set after. But I'm not sure exactly what year Origins came out. Pro- right around this time, I believe. It seems like that's been at least five years ago that that happened. Mm. So I'm, okay. I'm thinking probably right around the same, the same time. Um, another thing, was it before or after House of M? Ooh, um... Sorry to put you on the spot, but yeah. No, I, you know, no, I, that's fine. I'm <laughs> this show frequently tests my brain muscle. That's that's fine. I'm gonna say before, and I'm yeah. probably wrong. Well, but hope you know the great thing about this is that you know listeners are are always out there to to help me with these sort of things and correct me. So somebody write in and, and let us know for sure on that. But I'm yeah. going to guess that it's before because um after House of M, uh, Miss Marvel. Uh, because she saw like her fame and everything in the House of M universe, she went through a stage where she was really nervous and she wanted to try harder. So I was wondering if that's this Miss Marvel or Warbird or whatever. Actually, you know what? It's got to be before now that I think about it because Wolverine. Um, I don't think he stuck with this outfit f- for very long. I think by the time of House of M, if I'm not crazy, I think he'd actually changed again as far as what outfit he was wearing. 
but I was actually reading X-Men at this point, and I and I basically stopped reading X-Men and everything Marvel-related, really, you know, as far as modern stuff, after, uh, after uh, Civil War. Mm. So I had read up through House of M. I stopped uh, X-Men after House of M, and then the rest of Marvel after Civil War. So I know I was still reading X-Men at this point, so it has to be before House of M. Okay. <laughs> How's that for a nice vague answer? <laughs> I think I think it's pretty um well not knowledgeable but uh, <laughs> deep into the memory type of thing. <laughs> so what you got today? Well, I'm going back to February 1983, and I'm doing Marvel Star Wars 68, the first Ooh. appearance of Fenn Schreiser. Oh, sweet! Yeah. <laughs> It's not his first um, chronological appearance, though, because I think that's Order 66, if I'm right. Could be, could be. I'm, I'm actually, I'm reading that right now, and I know that uh, that listeners that, that listen to me on other shows are probably like, Jesus, this is taking him forever to get through that book. And you're absolutely right, it really is. And it's not because it's a bad book, it's just because my time is so limited and that book is really, really dense. But yeah, I think you could be right. I think chronologically that may be his first appearance. Well, the cover art's by uh, Gene Day. It's written by, oh God, I have trouble pronouncing this, uh, David Michelini, maybe? I'm not entirely sure. It's I, I've heard it pronounced a number of different ways. I always said Michelini, but I've heard it's actually Michelini. But I don't know that. <laughs> I don't know that that's entirely accurate either. Yeah, I was good with Michelini. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, the art inside the book is by Gene Day again, inked by Tom Pla- Palmer or somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, the cover price is sixty cents. <laughs> Cheap, isn't it? Um, I paid uh, ten quid for a whole box of uh, Star Wars Marvel, so that's pretty good. That's about $20, I think. Wow. That's not bad at all. Yeah, I got about, um, I think it was 20 issues or something. So that was pretty cool. A dollar an issue? Yeah, that's not bad at all. The story's called The Search Begins. A quick summary of it. Chewie, Lando, and Leah. This this is straight after Empire Strikes Back, so Han's been uh, frozen in carbonite and everything. I have no idea what was going on before in the Star Wars Marvel if you got any, like, things, or was it the actual Empire Strikes Back story? Well, Empire... Ooh, I'm trying to remember what... Yeah, because this this is actually in that in-between period. Empire, the adaptation in the comics took place between issues, let's see, 39 and 44. So this is about... Coming up on two years... Let me see, the 45 to 68, yeah, about two years later, you know, uh, there there'd been two years worth of stories. And, uh, you know, you would think that that period between Empire and Jedi would be really rough for, for them to come up with stories or what, but it actually, some of the best stuff that ever came out of, of Marvel's Star Wars ser- series was set during that period between, uh, to, between Empire and Jedi because they didn't just spin their wheels. I mean, they actually had legitimate adventures and legitimate uh, stories just minus Han Solo and a lot of them were involved with them trying to find Han and and track him down and and recover him from Boba Fett and that sort of thing and they had other little side adventures and stuff and a lot of new characters were introduced and new allies and new enemies and all that sort of thing 
was Shadow of the Empire in between that bit? Chronologically it is, but that would come years and years later. Ah, okay, okay. Anyway, um, yeah, Lando, Luke, Leah, and uh, C-3PO and Artu will make a deal to find um, Han Solo. And uh, this story is mainly based on uh, Leia, to be honest. Uh, she um, reminisces about how she like misses Han and everything, about how quickly they fell in love, which is actually a good point. I found in the movie that straight away there was like love at first sight type of thing, which I thought it went a bit too quick, I think. But I don't know. Uh, I don't know how much time passed between them, actually. Between the movies? Yeah. Between Star Wars and Empire, it's a couple years... Oh, I guess it's not and between idea. Empire and Jedi, that's where it gets kind of fuzzy. Because if you take all this into account, you know, the, the Marvel series, it actually feels like a very long time. But I think officially in continuity, I think it's only supposed to be a, a, a few months at most between, wow. you know, the end of Empire and, and Jedi. It's basically enough time to, you know, for, for Luke to go to Tatooine and forge his new lightsaber and all that sort of thing. But, you know, Marvel wasn't very privy to what was going on you know, what, what the plans were for each new movie. They just kind of had to operate in the dark yeah. pretty much al- almost right up until the time that the new movie would come out and then kind of scramble to make their continuity fit as much as they could. But it, it, it works pretty good, I think. Yeah. Um, there's Later on, there's a bit of a continuity thing. But, uh, I, I don't know, so I need your advice on that. But anyway, yeah, so Leia is searching for the bounty hunter named, I think it's Dengar. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dengar the cyborg. So she's going to the planet um, Mandalorian, or Mandalore, even. So she goes onto that planet, and uh, she sees a load of slavers. And so she's going to interfere with them, trying to stop them. She sees they're being uh, controlled by the Imperial Regiment. Suddenly, the slavers get attacked by um, what looks like to be Boba Fett, the person she's actually looking for. Boba Fett's about to get shot in the back, and she actually saves him because she doesn't want to see... Well, bloodshed. Um, she gets uh, captured. Well, not captured. She gets like stopped by uh, Boba Fett, and he actually reveals himself to be the person Fen Shizer, if that's how you say his name. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, um, Fen Shizer offers to take her to um, his home and shows her around and everything. And she talks about why she's on the planet that she's looking for the guy uh, Denga, and he talks about why he's there as well. And this is the bit where I got... I It actually surprised me. He talks about the Mandalorian in the Clone Wars, which I never knew about, to be honest. I always assumed that the Clone Wars was the... Well, from the movies, everything, was the clones against the droids. I never knew these were in there. And he says um, how only three of them survived. Uh, his uh, commander, Boba Fett, and him and his uh, brotherhood chum, Toby Dalla. I think. And yeah, so I was really shocked that they were in the Clone Wars. I don't know how that fits into continuity, though. That's the bit I was a bit iffy about. I think parts do and parts don't, but uh, I I noticed that in the trailers for the second season of Clone Wars on Cartoon Network that they are bringing in the Mandalorians. And I know that a lot of the, the writers that work on this stuff these days, they're big fans of this Marvel Star Wars stuff as well. And Mm. so some of them are actively working 
to tie it in as much as they possibly can to actual continuity and rather than contradict it, make it fit as much as they can. And to you know, to me, of course, I'm very prejudiced. I grew up with this, and I love it. You know, this this was my Star Wars. You know, for years. You know, in that in between period between movies. So I want the stuff to you know. To my mind, this this is the canon, and everybody else should work around it. It doesn't yeah. really work that way, but that's that's kind of the way I, I I like to think about it. But I love that we've actually seen Shisa either mentioned or, or outright seen him appear in some of the, the novels and things like that. So that uh, that's pretty exciting. I don't know that they can actually take the origin as presented in this issue 100% and use that because there may be elements that conflict. But my memories of this issue are a little bit vague. So just going by, by your notes and what you've, you've said, it doesn't sound to me like any of it contradicts you know, horribly. It looks like you know. It sounds like they can use you know most of it anyway. So yeah, I was just it's because in the film, um, his father, uh, Boba Fett's father, Django. I, I was just look. I, I don't know. I don't oh, know. that's right. Yeah, that, I'm sorry. I was forgetting that part. Yeah, yeah. It would actually this would work better if his partner had been Django rather than Boba because yeah, Boba wouldn't be old enough to have fought in the clone. Yeah, I forgot about that. Well, you never know. They probably they probably never revealed themselves under the mask or something. I don't know. You, you could probably <laughs> retcon it in or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it has been retconned because I know I read all about this not long ago on that Wikipedia site or w- Wikipedia, it's called. Yeah. And now I actually I'm I'm fuzzy on what those details were, but for the most part, they they took Fen Shice's origin pretty straight. And I know that he and Toby Dalla have both been incorporated into official canon, you know, as far as the novels and things go. Mm-hmm. But the Boba Fett aspect of it, I'm I'm sure that had to be fuzzed, and it, they probably just ended up retconning it to where it was Django rather than Boba, but. You know, I, I know that he does fit somehow. I'm just a little fuzzy on exactly how he was made to to fit in there. Yeah, I've always been a bit. Um, I've never really got the Mandalorians or whatever you call them before. I've never. I mean, I've heard about them. I've, I've thought they were the coolest people in the whole of the Star Wars universe. Right. But I just, <laughs> but I think I thought they were cool because I didn't know anything about them. If you know what I mean, they were Enigma. So, yeah. No, absolutely. No, believe me, I understand that because uh, because you know that was the thing with the bounty hunters. You know, I would I used to go. You know, because when the Empire Strikes Back was out, it played at our local theater for over two years, and I went and saw it over and over and over again, largely for that you know that split second scene where you see the bounty hunters. Yeah. Just because they were so cool. And they don't do anything. They're just there. But I think a lot of what it is, you know, that a lot of the appeal of Boba Fett and the others was that they were completely mysterious. So your mind creates this idea of, oh, these guys are badass and they're really awesome without you actually seeing them do anything at all. You know, it's almost like, you know, seeing a, a bunch of Hell's Angels ride by you or something. You go, oh, those guys are badass. But well, what did you see them do? They just rode by on their bicycles. They might be a bunch of wussies. You don't know that, but you know that's kind of it was kind of that mystique thing going on for these bounty hunters. But uh, you know, Dengar that she's tracking in this issue was one of those bounty hunters that we see in Empire. He's he's the one that looks like Johnny Cash all wrapped up like a mummy, basically. I 
is this the special edition or the original, or is it both? Uh, in both. Huh. Oh, wait, so how many Bally Hunters are there? There's three, isn't there? There's, let me see, there's Boba Fett, IG-88, Bosk, Dengar, Zuckus, and Forlom. I think that's all of them. So what is that? Oh, wow, I missed the <laughs> I gotta go watch that film again. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's such a split-second thing. I mean, you know, one, one or two of those characters you literally see for, like, less than a second. Because yeah. the guys at the at the far right of that lineup, I mean, you get just a glimpse, and it's really only uh, Boba Fett and IG eighty eight. Mm. Well, well, and Bosk because Bosk is he the one that out, yeah right? he he's the one that's looking down at the Imperial that badmouths bounty hunters. But beyond yeah. him, you know, IG eighty eight is standing right next to Boba Fett, and then Boba Fett actually gets a line. You know, he's spoken to by Vader, and then he has a line of his own. So, you know, but everybody else just, you know, you, you get just a brief glimpse as Vader walks down the line, speaking to them, and then walks back. So, you know, that, that entire scene is, I'd be surprised if it's 30 seconds tops. It's really short. The thing I just found out how I keep on missing the other people is because, like you said, the, the Imperial people who were talking, I think my attention goes straight towards them. So then I miss the other uh, bounty hunters. I plus, think that's why. plus, if you know, they may be cut off if if you're watching like a pan and scan yeah. copy, like on you know on, on VHS or even a, a pan and scan DVD, may even cut those guys right out of the out of the scene. I'm not sure. Hmm. Yeah, I'm reading the Bantian to Wars series at the moment, or listening to them, and um, it's mainly about Boba Fett and uh, the Tandorian or whatever his name is. I can't remember. It begins with D. Now, is, is that a novel, or is that the comic series? The actual novel series. The um, uh, There's three of them. I think there's Mandalorian Armor, Slave Ship, and Armor Wars. Oh, okay, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading that myself. I'm, I'm nowhere near that point yet, but <laughs> hopefully soon. Yeah, still stuck on Order 66. <laughs> what did you think of this issue, though? Did you Did you enjoy it? Oh yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, I'll just finish up the summary. I just realized that. I was still oh, okay. That anyway, um, yeah, he reveals that he's found uh, Dengar and uh, Leia, saying, "Oh yeah, can we take him back to um, uh, the rebel base to uh, discuss, like, to get information out of him?" And uh, Finch Reiser, uh reveals that his friend's been kidnapped, and he's actually trading uh, Dengar as like a hostage, like two hostage trades, to get his friend back. Dengar offers a deal with uh, Leia in order it's like saying, oh yeah, if you spring me out, then I'll give you any information you want. And she, unfortunately, agrees. Uh, you see her running out, and she bumps into Van Schreiser. And uh, he's uh, like, oh, what are you doing? She actually says, oh yeah, I'm looking, forward, I'm looking to you to go for a walk. And this is where I find it quite amusing. She's off, like, basically just flirting with Van Schreiser where C-3PO is actually the hero of the book. He um, gets a knife out of his pocket and actually cuts down the cage, and so it falls onto the two guards that were there. Whereas um, Leia is just actually making out with Fenchraiser. But she only does that just like to knock him out. Uh, she gets Dengar, and they, um, they run away, basically. But they run straight into a trap. So, yeah. You should never trust a bounty hunter. <laughs> and that's the end. 
I I really need to re reread this issue because it's been a long time since I've read it. But I remember loving this issue when it came out, and and it was one of my favorites of the whole series because, for one thing, the cover when you know because this was back in the day when you didn't get solicits or advanced previews yeah. or anything. You know, you just you went to the to, to the spinner rack, and whatever was out was out. And I remember seeing this on the rack. And, you know, let me see, I would have been about 13, 12 or 13, and just being like, oh, holy shit, it's Boba Fett. You know, there's finally a whole Boba Fett issue and snapped it up. And the exact it. reason why I bought the box. That yep. was the first cover there. And oh, I was okay. like, I'm so buying this box just for that. Now, let so, me yeah. ask you, because, you know, my reaction was, and, and, you know, by all rights, I could see where somebody could read this and go, oh, damn it, it's not Boba Fett. But I did not have that reaction. I actually simply just fell in love with the character of Fen Shisa. You know, it didn't matter to me that it wasn't really Boba Fett. It was another guy of his race or army or whatever, you know, dressed exactly like him. So I, I just, you know, I found an attachment to him. But did you have the same reaction, or were you disappointed that it wasn't really Boba Fett? Um, At first, I was disappointed. When I first saw it, I was like, oh. But then, when I found out there was three of them, I was like, wait, why am I disappointed? There's three Boba Fetts out there now. Right. How cool is that? Instead of just being one, there's three of them. And now the other two, well, I don't know if they're good, but they're on the rebel side. So that's, I, I don't know if there is an issue or anything where they actually go face to face against Boba Fett. Because I thought that, I think that would be awesome. Yeah, I honestly, I don't remember. I don't remember Shisa and Fett ever coming face-to-face, but that's not to say it doesn't happen. However, we do see Toby Dalla, who's just mentioned in this one in, in flashback. He does come into this story later on. And as a matter of fact, I know that there are at least two two packs of action figures that you can buy today. Um, one of them has this issue in it, reprinted in it, and I believe the figures are Princess Leia... And no, I'm sorry, it's not either. It's uh, it's Fen Shisa, and I believe Dengar is the other figure. Wow, and then, that's pretty cool. Then there's another uh, set. I can't remember what comic is in it, but it has Princess Leia dressed in this very much like the Hoth Snow outfit, which I thought mm. was odd. And then the other figure is Toby Dalla. And so basically there's there's more Boba Fett looking action figures out there that are actually these other two characters. And then there's even another action figure, not at all related to this, but he's another Boba Fett-esque character who comes from one of the video games. He's like a Boba Fett impersonator. I can't oh, is that from the Shadow of the Empire video game? I want to say it's that, that fighting game, that Masters of whatever, Terrace Kazi or something like that. I just can't remember what the guy's name is. Because, you know, it's it's one of those fighting games where you can have the same character fight himself, but instead yeah. of having Boba Fett fight Boba Fett, it's actually Boba Fett fights like this Boba Fett impersonator, basically. And that guy became... I don't know if he's official canon, but there is an action figure for him. I just can't remember what the hell the guy's name is at the, off the top of my head. But I actually... I, I went on Wikipedia a while ago looking up all these... Like Boba Fett knockoffs, basically, like Fen Shisa and Toby Dalla. And there's huge information on all these characters. There's actually a whole slew 
of these Mandalorian style guys that are out there. And I find them all very interesting. You know, to me, it doesn't normally that sort of thing. I, I feel like it waters down the characters. Like when you get like Captain America clones or, or, you know, a zillion green lanterns or whatever. But in this case, it just seems cooler to me that there are more guys out there in the Boba Fett style. It builds up the mystery about his background still even more. Cause I, first of all, I thought it was just a guy in some armor. Mm-hmm. But now it's like there's lots of guys in the same armor, so what's that about? And then there's like, oh, yeah, these people have chosen different paths. It's like, oh, it's right. really interesting. Well, there's even there, – there was another – I think it may have been a one-shot. I'm not sure. It was either a one-shot or a miniseries called Boba Fett's uh, – Boba Fett Twin Engines of Destruction where he fights another guy who was a, a Boba Fett impersonator. Come to think of it, that guy might be the same guy from that video game. I'm not sure. There's, there's just a number of them. That was really interesting. And one of the Dark Horse Boba Fett miniseries, Boba Fett mentions Fenshisa by name. You know, he, he, he doesn't Fenshisa doesn't appear or anything, but he, you know, Boba Fett just mentions him uh, offhandedly. And I remember reading that when it came out, and it was like, oh, holy shit, he just mentioned Fenshin. You know, <laughs> I don't know why I get so excited about stuff like that, but I just do. I love any time later Star Wars material refers to the Marvel comic stuff in any way whatsoever, because I, I just love that justification, you know, that, that bringing that stuff into the fold. I, I really enjoy that. Because I don't want to see this Marvel Star Wars stuff dismissed out of hand i know a lot of it's goofy and a lot of it doesn't quite fit but the stuff that is cool i like to see it brought in i like to see it uh, embraced rather than just contradicted and, and written off or whatever yeah definitely i mean um some of the issues i've actually read are the early ones because i'm following on uh, the two true freak show and um but one of the issues i got is uh, i think it's around the 90s or something 97 or something like that is Luke Skywalker with giant rabbits or something? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, um, okay. So yeah, there's definitely some things in the Marvel uh, Star Wars universe that I want to be incorporated into the uh, Star Wars canon, but there's a lot of stuff I don't want it to be put in. There's yeah, I mean, well, it's like it's like any comics, you know. There's 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 some really awesome stuff, and there's some really lame stuff that's almost embarrassing in its lameness, but. I, I'll go out on a limb and say that I think, you know, of the of the 107 issues plus annuals and all that, I think far more of it is awesome than is lame. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that the scales are probably something like 80-20, you know, yeah. in favor of, of the stuff that, that was really awesome. And uh, the, the, the shame to me, the, the feeling, you know, the thing that always has bugged me the most about it was that it feel, it always felt to me like, it was actually ramping up about the time that the book got canceled because they had brought in Cynthia Martin as the artist and she drew in a very, almost an, a, a, like a manga-esque style, which granted I don't normally care for, but she brought a, a martial arts feel to like lightsaber battles and stuff like that years before we would see that sort of style in say, like the Phantom Menace battles with Darth Maul or the, the later lightsaber battles in, in the other movies. And I loved it. You know, seeing Luke battle in a very martial arts way against other characters that would wield lightsabers or even the light whip was was just incredible. I really liked her style. 
and uh, and sadly, you know, the the book didn't have much of a life beyond Return of the Jedi. But uh, that's something that uh, is down the road for us to discuss on on Two True Freaks. But I really appreciate you bringing this issue because wow, what a what a walk down memory lane for me. I absolutely love this storyline, and it, it tells me how badly I need to go reread it now because I'm I'm actually fuzzy on the details at this point because it's been so long since I've reread it. Yeah, I just um, every time you mentioned Fen Shrizer on the show, because I remember you saying it's your favorite character, I was like, oh, you know, who's this guy? I straight away assumed it would have been a Jedi or something because it has that type of name. And then um, when I looked at this issue, like I said, it was, it was the cover that got me. I bought the whole box because of the cover, so the whole twenty issues because of that single cover. And um, I started reading it. I I actually had no idea. I assumed it was Boba Fett to be honest. And then as soon as I saw Fen Shrizer, I was like, oh, this is just some guy. <laughs> and I remembered, and I was like, wait, this is the guy he likes. Why does he like him, type of thing. And as I read on throughout the issue, I suddenly realized, okay, this guy is actually cool. I can see why Scott is basically in love with him, type of thing. I, I think he's cool because in the beginning of this story, you you see him, or at least I, I, as a kid, I saw him very much as, oh, okay, I get it. This is the good Boba Fett. Yeah. You know, it's like Boba Fett is like an evil Mandalorian, but this guy's like a good Mandalorian. But then you get that twist at the end and you realize, oh, okay, this guy's morally gray. He he's basically a mercenary that could that could fall on either side depending. He almost he's almost like Boba Fett with like a like a Han Solo-ish personality to where everything's about money and opportunity and he could fall on either side depending on what the situation is. I love that. I just thought that that was really a, an interesting way to go with this character to where you couldn't really get a feel for him as far as is he a hero or is he a villain? He well, he's not really either one. He could be either depending on the situation. That I just think that's a really cool character. I think that makes him very interesting because you yeah, yeah. never know what he's going to do. Yeah, I I think um like at the moment, the equivalent to that character is um, Jango Fair. Because in the actual comics, and I don't know, if, actually maybe in the movies, he is actually presented as just a guy who's just following orders. Like, he actually has a side of him that, yeah, he does jobs like that are really dirty type of thing, but he also does stuff that's good. It's like he protects his kid and everything. Right. So he's that same type of gray area. So I, I, part of me thinks they might have actually used the Fen Shiraiza character to create Jango Fett or something. I wouldn't be surprised, actually, because I know that he is something of a fan favorite. And uh, I tell you, my biggest geek fantasy, as far as Star Wars is related, is I want to see Fen Shaisa on television. I want to see him in Clone Wars. Or even, you know, <laughs> this would be really really out there but you know if and when this you know this proposed live action star wars thing ever really does come to fruition would love to see fen shisa in a live action star wars thing you know if, if that ever comes along i think that would be just it, it's definitely my my biggest star wars fantasy i would love to see that actually happen with the live action um uh tv show part of me thinks they're going to use it as like uh, not like teenagers, well, not teenagers, like, you know, 21-year-olds type things that, like, see, I don't know, just try and make it, like, really hip instead of 
uh, Star Wars esque, if you know what I mean. Oh, I hope not. But you know, I, my my first inclination was to go, nah, that'll never happen. But you know, we've we've seen it happen to another, uh, you know, huge beloved science fiction pro- uh, property recently. So you never, you never know. Yep. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me right back here next week when who knows what mystery guest host will be popping by. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, and criticisms for the show via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of the comicforums.com. We are now accepting requests for guest host spots on the show, so if you'd like to join me in an episode, let me know. Also, please be sure to check out the home website for Back to the Bins at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you can find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcast.com. Take a moment to drop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and I'll see you next week.